This is what I mean when I'm talking about time and death and futility. There are broader ideas at work, mainly what is owed between us as a society for our mutual illusions. You look in their eyes, even in a picture. Doesn't matter if they're dead or alive, you can still read them. And you know what you see? They welcomed it. Not at first, but right there in the last instant. It's an unmistakable relief. See, because they were afraid. And now they saw for the very first time how easy it was to just let go. And they saw in that last nanosecond, they saw what they were. That you, yourself, this whole big drama, it was never anything but a jerry rig of presumption and dumb will. And you could just let go. Finally know that you didn't have to hold on so tight. To realize that all your life, not all your love, all your hate, all your memory, all your pain, it was all the same thing. It was all the same dream, a dream that you had inside a locked room. A dream about being a person. One of the most intense scenes in TV history, from the Manichaean epic known as True Detective Season 1. We'll partly be dealing with dreams on this episode, you see. But is the monster at the end of the dream your shadow you must integrate? Or the chief archon himself, Yaldabaoth? ready to break your mind once again and cast you back into that jerry rig of presumption and dumb will that is existing as a meat sack in the black iron prison trapped once again in the coils of the ouroboros is this a dream or a reality or as james joyce said Is history just a nightmare from which I am trying to awaken? Which is it? You decide what is real and what is not. You. Your will. Can you let go and become free of the unbearable likeness of being? Can you find the answers in that state you dwell in for so many hours during the night? Hack into eldritch forces outside the gates of dawn that are beyond comprehension and beyond belief? I think you know the answers because you are here, once again, at Aeon Bite. And you're ready to kick some Dreamtime ass. Birth is a curse and existence is a prison. I know Jungian ideas and dreams have been a theme recently, but it is in those inner domains that we will find our higher selves and have to overcome great monsters to finally be able to handle the monsters of the outer world. 
I mean, do you think the Archons have taken their foot off the pedal this year? Do you think they're sated? They're done feeding? That they will move their planetary jackboots from the face and throats of humanity? No, no, in this age of Hermes you either transform or you fall. As the Empire holograms are merely shifting once again to hide the rising thirst of that wickedness in high places. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Don't get fooled, oh you high priests and priestesses of Hermes and Sophia. Don't get fooled. The apocalypse, however you define it, is just getting started. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. As my friend Jim told me, this is the relevant time to understand the banality of evil. A concept by Martin Heidegger's student, Hannah Arendt. She contended that true evil doesn't come looking like Sauron or Thanos, but in the form of an unassuming geek or friendly nerd bureaucrat, all to hide the scalpel of a Machiavellian technocrat or soulless pencil pusher. Kafkaesque yet hypnotizing with innovative sounding scientism and eugenics. No, not like Sauron or Thanos, but more like Himmler or Mao or Irenaeus. Well, I'm sure you can think of some Machiavellian technocrat posing as an unassuming geek today. I mean, if Iran were alive today, she'd shit in her panties if you showed her the LinkedIn profiles of your average Silicon Valley CEO or new atheist luminary or think tank guru. Yes, the 21st century has been a buffet feast for the Archons. It's like we've forgotten who we are, Tom. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Arend a Jew who barely escaped the wrath of the Second World War, also noted that the banality of evil and National Socialism couched everything in a pre-crime weapon of, quote, motivation. They judge their foes by alleged motivations, not their acts. And the Nazis contended human civilization was heavily divided by identity the right, pure identity, and everyone else and their motivations. What you said was also a type of minority report evidence of what you would do in the future, and thus you should be punished severely for it in the present. Sound familiar? If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. See, it's, it's no good, Monty. We've all got to be alike. The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. The banality of evil is a precursor of today's political correctness or wokeness. 
that assumes your future actions and deepest drives by deciphering, <coughs> projecting your motivation. And the wrong motivation, the polluted identity that can't be cured, is a threat to society, cannot be reasoned with, and must be eliminated immediately. As with Europe in the 1930s and 40s, these unassuming nerds are the monsters at the end of the bad dream that is Western culture. The illusion of freedom will continue as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery. They will move the chairs and tables out of the way. And you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater. To cure this Terry Gillian movie vibe, I'm very excited to have at the virtual Alexandria, Axel Berushu, owner and manager of the remarkable website, Dream Sanctuary, where he literally guides you to understand where you need to be with with the works of C.G. Jung and how to get started with Jungian dream work and other therapies. Axel will share much of this in our interview, as well as insights on other Jungian concepts and the Red Book. You really are a good shrink, Doctor. Carl Jung already tried that. Stop talking! My unconscious mind hates you! You know, oh you of the broken places, that mining for a divine spark is the only hope against the monster at the end of the dream that is the banality of evil in 2021. In fact, screw hope. Where hope dies, imagination must live. And as the Cheshire Cat said, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. So go away, Hope. It's said that the worst thing to come out of Pandora's box were not the sorrows or the plagues. It was hope itself. Hope's a gamble. Hope lacks certainty. Plotinus said that our souls are not within us, but we are within the soul. And Jung said our psyche is not within us, but surrounds our ego. And that energy around us is infinite and of pure imagination. That is a pleroma. As the great Colin Wilson once said, Imagination should be not to escape reality, but to create it. Such a disappointment. We can make anything we fancy in this arena of infinite promise. And this is what we come up with? Weapons? War? Surely we have more imagination than that. So imagine better or some evil nerd will imagine reality for you. Don't just dream, but understand your dreams and the archetypes and complexes behind them. And certainly plug out of the machine that is the mass media and the digital spaces for the love of Montresor. Walk away from that fucking Omelas. 
As Herbert Simon wrote, what information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. This is a marketing holocaust. 24 hours a day for the rest of our lives the powers that be are hard at work, dumbing us to death. This all plays into the endgame of the Archons, as elucidated by CIA Director William Casey, when he said concerning Operation Mockingbird, We'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. In a more Gnostic slash Jungian Dickian sense, let me quote the Nag Hammadi Library's Peter's letter to Philip. The Archons are fighting against the inner man. The powers and principalities don't want us looking into our inner man, our true self. Heck and Hecate. The word Archon means ruler in Greek, but it can also mean bureaucrat. Beyond Astral Union thug lords, the Archons were depicted as the desk jockeys of the cosmos, with their good intentions as long as you fed them and didn't think independently. Ah, uh, Henry, why don't you wake up? Darwin was wrong. Man's still an ape. So let us not allow the banality of evil to fight our inner man. Let's unleash our dreams and you'll gain so many insights and tools with our interview with Axel. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. You walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. The Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and we are very happy to be joined by Axel Berrucho to discuss his amazing website and certainly amazing ideas. And his website is The Mind Map, which we will get into. Axel, how are you doing? And thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me at the virtual Alexandria. It's a great <laughs> honor. Yes, well, awesome. You have materialized here in the desert of the real, as I like to say. 
And with us, too, in the desert of the real, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine and looking forward to this much-needed guide to the hugely deep subject of Carl Jung. Oh, I agree. It's like, where has this thing been all of our lives? And I think it will benefit many people out there who, uh, even if they know Jung, even when they're getting started, especially in these uh, this age of Hermes, where I think Jungian ideas are more important than ever. But before we get into that, Axel, please tell us about, uh, give us a little bio, how you got interested in Jung and all that good stuff. Sure. So I was born in Switzerland and my main language is French. So I apologize for the accent and uh, maybe some awkwardness. I also come up, come out of a small um, cold. So my, hopefully um, this won't be too much of an issue in the, rec- the recording. Um, the first 25 years of my life are basically not very interesting. I've been, I was good at school. I was good at math, did an engineering degree. A very standard stuff, I would say, um, very rational um, um, path. I did 10 years of music, so I know it was fairly intense. I, did, I, I played guitar, I composed music, I played with a band, I learned how to record, to do mastering, I've released some albums. So that was a big part of my life. Um, but it did just turn out it was not a, car- a career. It was more of a, something I tried as much as possible. It did not work for me. So I, because I'm kind of an auditory person, I really enjoyed listening to uh, YouTube, which started getting big at the time. It was quite a novelty. This, um, the yeah. fact that people were starting to talk a lot online was very enjoyable. So that's how I got slightly into psychology after the split with music. Now I need to talk about something that's very personal to me, but it's very important in this context, and it will explain why I'm so uh, interested in Jung. Um, as a teenager, I was I've, I've had a bit of a um, social issue, socialization issue. Uh, I, I struggle um, a lot, and at some point, I kind of fell in love with a fictional uh, female character. This might sound strange, but I think it had. It happens quite often. Even um, there's something like the Pygmalion um, story where a sculptor falls in love with this sculpture. For the best part of a year, um, this fictional um, relationship kind of gave me comfort and support. And one day, I just, everything shifted and I feel, felt very angry that this relationship was fake, not real. And it, it left me very confused and say, well, I, I obviously got some meaning out of that fake relationship, even if it's fake. So what happened to me? Is that normal? And it just happened that I found a video from uh, Jung um, that talked about anima projection. And I was shocked because I'm like, this is exactly what happened to me. I projected my anima into a fictional character and I established a relationship like that. And so, uh, you know, we know that unconscious content do not appear in consciousness. They first always appear projected, and then you can retrieve the projection. So that's what happened. Exactly, and, I was yeah. so, and I was so glad to find someone who um, did not pathologize this uh, phenomenon, because it's quite curious, uh, and a lot of people might, be, might struggle with that as well. 
And so that's how I got into Jung. I found uh, a depth of um, character in his writing uh, at certain. And it's something that happened to me. So I'm like, let's see what else he, he got right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I started reading him more. I have a fairly intense uh, dream dream practice. Uh, so I write down my dreams and analyze them. And five or ten years later, well, here I am. I'm still an amateur. Uh, I don't think I'm... I don't have a degree or anything like that. I do this on my own. I live in Australia. Um, uh, I'm married. I have a kid. Um, yeah, life is strange. <laughs> no, I think that's awesome. Yeah, you are definitely uh, a case study in active imagination. Sometimes uh, it may seem like a fantasy or we're forcing things, but these figures uh, will come alive. And like, like you said, they are a projection. I mean, Aeon Bite, the word came from me imagining a, sort of a, a heroine in a space opera science fiction short story that I wrote and she continued through my life and eventually she was called uh, this venture right now. So mm -hmm. I can certainly relate to that and I think most people can. Um, and how did you uh, decide to create the mind map, your website? Right. So again, I've done this as an amateur and I've talked to people online. So I'm, I have a decent practice with my own dreams and I noticed I could actually help people uh, online. So I decided to professionalize myself quite recently. So this is the a website I've done, this dreamsanctuary.net. There's a few articles. Uh, there's, a, there's a dream template. If you want to know how I go on um, with my dreams, that's the article you should read. Uh, there's also 20 dreams that I've analyzed, my own dreams, so people um, can um, just see how I work with my own stuff. Um, it's always interesting. I don't think this exists uh, online, so that's a novel thing I wanted to try. And I've decided, because I'm really interested in what I call the later works of Jung, and this is everything that deals with religion, alchemical text, and all those um, very deep and difficult issue. But I've noticed that nobody knows how to approach them. They're very, very difficult. Um, and so I, I've read that as an amateur and suddenly I felt like the need of grouping things together. And so there is this, so I made a mind map visual guide that looks like a tree where you start at the top. There's the prerequisite. Mm -hmm. You come to the red book and then on the right side, there's a suggestion for therapy if you feel like going into therapy, and I suggest that. And on the left side, uh, so on the right side, there's a therapeutic path, and on the left side, there's would be the study path, and that's grouping those difficult works together. So you you would have a sense where they belong. Um, it's not really a recommended order, but the deeper you go, the more difficult it is. That um, you know, I've not read those books in that order, so even I haven't followed the way it is it's, it's just a way to group them um to kind of map the territory because reading Jung is not easy <laughs> no and it's yeah for the audience uh, how you want to approach Jung Axel does a great job to go on this map and understand should I go here first for analytical or uh, more just scholarly to sort of understand who Jung is in the historical continuum of great thinkers and psychology 
it's a, it's yeah it's it's a great adventure that you'll find and uh, you find uh, excellent books and like you said uh, Jung is not easy a writer to understand and i believe uh Jung himself always said he wasn't a good writer right he was just too uh dense <laughs> yeah he, he, he laid up of a forest of words <laughs> that links to each other and it's not a straight line by any means. It has this circular or spiral um, thing. So you, if someone reads Jung, it might seem that he's contradicting himself all the time, but that's not exactly, re- that's not exactly true. He, he approached a concept from his positive side, then its negative side, and then he approached it from a deeper level. And so it's, it's really difficult to know what he's up to. Um, so, so, yeah. And you would say uh, you write that, uh, speaking of Jung, I guess I'm kind of quoting Laura London's podcast, but yes, speaking of Jung, he and the way he wrote and his words, uh, you recommend Daryl Sharp's Jung lexicon. You feel that's an excellent place to, again, understand the Jung vocabulary and context. Right. That's the guide I always have open, uh, uh, either on a tab. It's available for free online, so there's no... Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, if you Google Jung Lexicon, uh, you should find it on the first link. It's very, very useful. Um, and he really, he really explains Jung through Jung. Uh, so that's... Otherwise, usually you have second or third hand... Um, interpretation but here you really have something to start with so if you don't know what i don't know complex is well you find the definition that's a good start and if you don't know what uh uh let's say affect emotion is used by jung then you'll you'll find there and of course all the shadow anima archetype so yeah this this i would say is mandatory if you if you really want to read jung and kind of still man him and not not kind of make your own interpretation, but say like, what is he up to? What, what, what is this work? And this is my, my goal is to um, kind of find if there's a mistake in his work um, by still manning him. So I don't, I don't want any uh, shallow interpretation. I don't want any shallow um, reading of him. Uh, I, and I want to experience that for myself. I want to do my dream analysis. I want to do my active imagination and see if what he says is correct. Yeah, very cool. And uh, these definitions of lexicon, are they directly from Jung or their interpretation by the author? They're both. Uh, so there's kind of a, a line that summarizes, and then there's usually a quote that explains the line. So, yeah. And how has Jung uh, benefited you? Would you say, uh, what are some of the rewards in your union journey, obviously? If you're reading, you say, well, obviously you're heading towards individuation, but how has he made your life better, Axel? So um, I would answer that my my dream practice has been fundamental in um, dealing with my life. Um, what I found in my dream is once I got kind of good at it, is they would give me potentials, future potentials on what I should do and what I should not do. The reason I'm in Australia is because I, I had a dream to go in Australia. Uh, it's oh. a bit more complicated than that. The reason why I'm married is because I had a dream that told me, like, go for it. 
uh, it might sound strange, but I really believe that this connection uh, with the unconscious is meant to help us to take decision. With consciousness and the ego, we have a limited world of the view, um, limited view of the world. And with the unconscious, it, it brings out information that we are not aware of and that helps us. Um, so that would be a big thing. The other thing would say, um, I've done a shadow work, quite a lot of it, and I found some kind of respect for myself um, by not exactly dismissing evil, but kind of understanding evil. If, if, you, if you do your shadow work and if you approach those difficult things, then you gain respect for um, this balance of light and dark that's in this cosmos. Um, so that I would say, that I would say is also beneficial. Well, well said. I love it. Yeah, so many tools uh, out there for Jung and many I have adopted. But here's a question, maybe a side question, and let me know your opinion. I actually did a little talk today as I was, uh, I just finished uh, interviewing uh, Bernardo Castro. And he was talking about the metaphysics of Jung, and I was talking about, again, the techniques. And uh, do you feel that you have to have, to, be, to truly become individuated or really mine Jung's rewards, do you need a Jungian analyst, or can you take the techniques that Jung left around and that can help you? I mean, what's your stance on it? Right, so um, I've... Again, I'm not a therapist, but I've been in therapy. And I've been in different kind of therapy. Um, and I've got, I've got to a body kind of therapy, which is called somatic experiencing. And I've got to a kind of psychological therapy, uh, which is called internal family systems. I've never been to a Jungian therapist. So um, I do think that you need, you need to be supported in your, your therapeutic efforts, especially at the beginning. Um, but do you need a Jungian analyst for? No, I, I don't think so. I think what matters more is um, the relationship that you have with the therapist. Um, so that's what I, I, I would say. If you yeah, do everything agree. by yourself, at some point you will reach your own blind spot and limitations. And there's some stuff I've done with my therapist that I wouldn't have been able to do by myself. But once I got the hang of it, um, you know, I'm, I can do stuff on my own. And if I really ne need help, I, I'll go to some people that I trust. So it's, you, you need, you need guidance at the beginning. And then uh, you need kind of like friends in case uh, it goes badly, I would say. I think that's good advice. I mean, even myself, uh, my therapist is definitely not into Jung, but I keep bringing my, uh, my dreams, my inner symbols and, uh, Finally, the other day, I said, well, I had this dream and she like latched on to me in the dream. She became very interested. You know, it's like we hit that Jungian sweet spot where she finally understood that I wanted to talk about dreams and inner symbols and all that. And she decided to engage me with that. So I think you're right. And whoever your your uh, hierophant or your teacher or whoever's taking you down that path, uh, will help you so um and uh what about you talk about shadow work what in what exactly entails shadow work beyond just uh what people do like me where we're like okay i'm feeling something so it must be a projection there's something i don't want to face about myself or something i don't want to be so i know 
these uh, pre- these emotions I'm broadcasting outwards or these images I'm creating with these people. It's just my shadow. Is there, what else could, is there to shadow work? Right. So um, before talking about shadow work, I'll come back to um, uh, inter- internal family system. So that's the therapeutic model I've used. And you kind of approach, you discover the multiplicity of the psyche by figuring out that sometimes you have strong emotions um, to topic and you don't really understand them. Maybe someone criticized you and you just lost all your means. And so in that context of therapy, you would approach the part of you that's kind of autonomous from the ego. It kind of takes over you. So you would approach this part and build a relationship and try to understand what's behind it. In, in Freud would say this is a defense, mechan- defense mechanism. And so you would understand that this part will shut down. is kind of trying to protect you from maybe being uh, physically abused. So you, you first discover the role of the defense, which is called complex, and then you kind of figure out the purpose behind it. Usually it's trauma. Um, and there's a very strong emotion to it. And that's how you recover a part of yourself that was established as a defensive role and you, you kind of retrieve its essence. So that, that's this model I've been using and I've discovered that there's usually something behind my, um, my, my strange behaviors. You would call them dysfunctional behaviors. And those dysfunctional behaviors are the result of past trauma that are st- stuck. And so there's, a, there's practice to go back uh, that way. And once you understand that, you, you kind of figure out that when you have a strong emotional reaction to something, you can visit it and see who's there, what's there. Maybe, and there's this, it, when you do this, this work, especially through active imagination, or maybe there's a dream that tells you what's happening, then you've, you can engage with these this, um, parts of you and you can discover what it has to teach you and what you want you can now understand from him so my my practice uh the first thing is you need to make sure it's not a projection so every time i talk about someone or something i make sure that i'm not talking about myself i kind of turn turn my description against myself so if i say like this guy is lazy it's like no maybe (laughs) it's me this guy is quick to anger well actually i'm quick to anger so I try to make sure that when I talk about something, I first make sure it's not me that I'm projecting. And when I realize that there's a strong emotion, I engage in whatever means I have to uh, to figure out what's at the bottom of this. And at, at that point, you discover that there is there is something that has a specific flavor that um, would be called the shadow. It, it manifests again and again in a, in a deep practice of active imagination. No, it makes sense. And uh, as some have said, the shadow, we like to think that the shadow is always something negative, some uh, repressed darkness or trauma. But uh, I forget who said it, that uh, the shadow is everything I don't want to be. So sometimes it can be something more or less positive, right? Like, uh, um, as a child, I wanted, as an example, I realized I was good with music and then I forgot about music and the shadow keeps coming out 
into music or you know this this um, this discomfort about not wanting to play music or you hate music when in reality it wants you to go back and try to be a musician something like that axel yeah i can give an example of something i've done with my therapist um so i was dealing with procrastination something that a lot of people might (laughs) yeah everybody (laughs) so with my therapist approach is say there's a part of me that just don't want to work and um, it's, it's going on, on the internet and it's never doing what I want. And the therapist told me like, this is not a way you interact with a part of yourself. You're being too judgmental. You're being too angry at it. So there was another part of me that was polarized. So there's a part of me that doesn't want to work and you could call them lazy, but it's not exactly that. It's just refusing something. And then there's another part of me which is extremely judgmental and is actually very insecure. So I'm standing between those two parts of me, one that's like, ah, I don't want to work, I'm exhausted. And there's another one which is, we need to work, we need to get things, otherwise everything is going to turn poorly. So I discovered that the problem was not in the part that did not want to work, but in the part of me that was so aggressive towards myself. And that's that's how I, I figure out that... Um, we ha- we really work with a kind of zoo inside ourselves, and we're not exactly sure what the blame is. A lot of people blame procrastination. Procrastination is a mechanism that tries to save us from collapsing, overworking ourselves. And so maybe what we have to work on is this uh, self-attack. That's uh, that w- where does it come from? Maybe it comes from uh, from childhood. Maybe it comes from something else. Oh yes, indeed, and. Uh... Uh, something that should be said, were you surprised at one point? I mean, Axel, you're talking about different parts of yourself, but were you surprised at one point when you realized I am this big amalgamation of different Axels and uh, it's almost like Legion, it's almost like every human being is schizophrenic and uh, in this, you know, beyond the ego and in the vast ocean of the unconscious. Were you pretty surprised and shocked about this? I was. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I thought there was only one Miguel and that was it. And I was just adding Miguel to Miguel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, I mean, you know, at first you work with your personal trauma, then you work with the trauma you've inherited from your parents. And then you don't exactly know the the stuff that's even weirder than that. Uh, And I would say that the Red Book of Jung showed that there's weird stuff in the unconscious. So the discovery of the unconscious, that there's an intelligence in the unconscious that's way superior from from the ego, that's a shock, yeah. Because it it puts the position of the ego below the unconscious, but at the same time above it, because the unconscious needs the ego and the ego needs the unconscious. This is what individuation is. Individuation is this um, feedback loop, this relationship from the center of consciousness, ego, and the center of the unconscious, which is um, when you work with it, you you discover that it's the self. So it's not an identification. You don't become the unconscious or you don't become the self, but you build an axis and you work with it. So the the unconscious sends you a dream and you figure it out and then you work out and then the next night another dream shows up or maybe strong feelings shows up, you know, gut instinct. Gut instinct is a good way also to to, um, orient yourself in difficult choices. And that's what self-knowledge is in 
the the work of Jung. It's not really discovering your consciousness and its content. It's discovering what's unconscious and its content. It's bringing those content into consciousness. So it's a very different ball uh, ball game than a lot of people consider um, either therapy or self self help. Self knowledge, as defined in those work, this is engaging with what you don't know about yourself and bringing that out into into something that's manageable from the from the standpoint of the ego see um the dreams are made of something that we do not fully understand um they're made of symbols they're not made of signs so signs would be two plus two equals four so you know what two is plus is and you know that two plus two must equals four there's no there's no question about that you know if you see a stop sign in the road well you know it means to stop Right, <laughs> but if you have a dream and the dream, let's take a funny example. Um, let's say you have a dream and there's a character that barbecues t-shirts. <laughs> uh, that's funny, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what is that? What is this thing? Well, that's not a sign. That's a production from the unconscious, and it's perceptible, but it's it's mysterious. It's not. It escapes understanding, and that's what a symbol is. It's it's. Um, we have to translate those symbols so we can understand our inner experiences. You know, you had this guest, uh, Lance Owens um, from the Black Books, and he said that concepts like shadow anima, well, these are not concepts, but the type of language for interpreting events of the soul, of the psyche. And he's, he's right on, like, this is, that's what it is. Here's a quote from Jung in the Letters, Volume 2. Analytical psychology, which is Jungian psychology, analytical psychology is not the religious experience, nor does it bring it about. But we do know that analytical psychology teaches us that attitude, which meets a transcendent reality halfway. That's what Jung's work is. It's a map of the unconscious, and he gives us language that allows us to translate what's happening to us. Love it, and well said. And. uh... Vance, any of uh, or any of the Vances there have a question or a comment? Oh yeah, a few of them. <laughs> um, one one thing I was wondering is uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about dream interpretation. Uh, if you have certain symbols, are they personal to you, or does Young believe in you know certain symbols are universal, or maybe both? Right. Um... Um, a symbol is archetypal if it has some kind of track history in um, in mythology or in other people. So barbecuing T-shirts, that's not <laughs> that's not archetypal. But fire and clothes is. So that's that's something that you would uh, see. Um, there's the thing with archetypes; they're kind of potential, so they appear in a personalized way sometimes and sometimes they appear as the the full thing um in huge dreams so it really depends on context um this this both oh okay another thing i was wondering is um uh what can you say about uh, jung's connection to gnosticism because you know we have abraxas and gnosticism and jung talked about abraxas and how does that work right um yeah this is um i I don't think Jung can be described as a Gnostic, but he has an interest for Gnosticism that's, that's undeniable. Um, 
and he kind of shows up in his red book, uh, which is a, a big surprise. See, so maybe we've talked a bit about the basics. We'll go into the, the red book and we'll go into Abraxas in a, in a while. So th the red book is kind of the start and the end of the work of Jung. I've decided to put at the start, um, but if people put it at the, the end, that's fine. Um, it's, it's a choice. I did it because that's kind of what he says. He says that he opens the book with the years of which I have spoken to you when I pursued the inner images were the most important time of my life. Everything else is to be derived from this. So we, if Jung says that, that must mean it's kind of a central work. So I've put it at the start of the later works. The Red Book is a strange book, the same way that Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche is a strange book. Mm, yes. See, some people say that um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra is a kind of um, Old Testament book. And if that's the case, if, if we use this analogy, I would say that um, the, the Red Book is a kind of New Testament. There's a reason why I'm saying that, not just to uh, use big words. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra, it's Zarathustra who spoke. It's not Nietzsche. It's the bigger personality inside him that kind of assaults us, um, honestly. But in the, the Red Book, it's a dialogue between Jung and his soul, and it's a dialogue between Jung and all kinds of different encounters. So in one case, there's an identification with um, whatever's happening in the unconscious. And in the Red Book, there's a dialogue. So Jung maintains his ego um, while he's being faced with this, this big mystery, this mystical experience of his life. So um, the way to understand the Red Book is if dreams are weird, but dreams are the unconscious talking to the ego, what would happen if the ego starts visiting the unconscious? And it's pretty, it's, it's even weirder and it's very intense. And the Red Book is the series of encounters where, where Jung himself visits his own unconscious. There's lots of different encounters uh, with giants. Uh, there's uh, the red one, which is said that it's the devil. Um, there's uh, Philemon, which is a Gnostic uh, mentor to Jung. Again, an inner character. There's all kind of weird stuff. Um, I can't summarize that book. It's impossible. But what's useful is he laid out a commentary. So for each encounters, we have a commentary of um, what's, what, what's the meaning? How would you translate if that happened to you? That's why it's, that's why it's, a, it's a great book. Um, and now we can go on the, the end of the Red Book, which is, I guess, a cool classic here, The Seven Sermons to the Dead. Oh, yeah. And um, what, so The Seven Sermons to the Dead is, is a piece of Gnostic cosmology. There's really no way to describe that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And again, it's not Jung who talks. It's a character that's called Philemon that, that talks for him. And he goes, the way I would, the would, the way I would summarize uh, the seven sermons is that it's the, um, the story of the, God, the Christian God of love that failed. It failed dead the dead came back from Jerusalem where they found not what they sought. So there is this failure of the God of love, maybe Christianity as a whole. And Philemon introduced Abraxas as, as a way to explain. This is what he says. 
God and devil are distinguished by the qualities fullness and emptiness, generation and destruction. Effectiveness is common to both. Effectiveness joins them. Effectiveness, therefore, standeth above, above both, is a God above God, since in its effect it uniteth fullness and emptiness. This is a God you, you knew nothing about, because mankind forgot him. We call him by his name, Abraxas. He is even more indef indefinite than the Christian God and the devil. He's the God that's difficult to grasp. Um, his power is greatest, because man does not see it. From the sun, man draws the eternal good from the devil, the bottomless evil, but from Abraxas, life, altogether indef indefinite, the mother of good and evil. So Abraxas is represented, and that will be heretical, but whatever, is the union mm -hmm. of the Christian God and Satan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Christians want to claim to be a monotheism, it becomes unavoidable that those opposites are contained in God. So that's, that's the teaching of um, Philemon. And now there's a third thing that needs to be introduced. I'll quote what Philemon says. At immeasurable distance, a lonely star stands in the zenith. This is the one God of this one man. This is his world, his pleroma, his divinity. This star is the God and the goal of man. This is his one guiding God. In him, man goes to his rest. Toward him goes the long journey of the soul after death. In him, everything that man withdraws from the greater world shines resplendently. Nothing stands between man and his one God. So long, as, so long as man can turn away his eyes from the flaming spectacle of Abraxas. So this is the question. When we talk about God, what do we talk about? Do we talk about the Christian God? Do we talk about Abraxas, which is described as the God above God? Or do we talk about this star? And I think that's what, when Jung used the self, he does not it does not refer to Abraxas. He refers to this one star, this one God of this one man. And that's the connection we should um, work with as long as we can turn away our eyes from the flaming spectacle of Abraxas. That's the mystery at the bottom of the red book and the black book is respect for and disdain of the gods. That is the mystery. God, that's really well said. And uh love it when you you write about it uh and basically in the black books with abraxas and everything i mean it's really a sort of a, a map of individuation won't you say or that's what jung was working out i think it's jung's personal um journey it's his experience i've had you know some experience myself they don't they don't really match um i i've met the same theme um but I, I don't I don't think I think you have to distinguish um you should not try to copy Jung's red book. Jung's red book is Jung's red book. But I'm so happy that something like that exists because it, it really shows us um how strange the inner world is, the unconscious is. So I'm I'm forever grateful that someone took the time to write down all these experiences like that. Um I think it's invaluable. Oh, I would agree. And uh, as I say, write your own gospel, live your own myth. I think that's what Jung did. I think that's what the best we can do to go into the underworlds of the unconscious and uh, up to the heights of the pleroma. For the audience, I know uh, if you're interested in uh, Jung and Gnosticism, you should definitely get Alfred Reby's book, 
the search for roots, C.G. Jung and the tradition of Gnosis. Lance Owen writes a foreword and he almost wrote an entire book, uh, you know, uh, advocating for Jung's Gnostic themes. And then uh, if anybody gets a chance, um, volume four of Jung's Red Book for a Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions. Uh, there's an essay by um by by uh dr john ryan howell i hope i'm saying it right h-a-u-l-e and he also goes into the gnostic uh themes of jung i think the essay is called jung comes back to himself but i think you would agree regardless of uh where our stands I, I we would probably agree that jung really as he himself said it was like long lost friends that these individuals knew the secrets of the psyche i mean i think jung felt a kinship that the gnostics were perhaps the first time in history these individuals who decided that they were going to go inward and they were going to really engage in the world of symbols and archetypes and images and each gnostic uh, mystagogue was going to come up with their own version of what they had seen, you know, in reality and or the reality behind reality, the unconscious and the collective unconscious. So I think Jung really admired that, even though I know he admitted later that uh, he found that maybe the Gnostics were so back in time that alchemy worked even better because modern people could relate more to alchemy, even though you can make an argument that alchemy is Gnostic and Hermetic in its origins. but. Uh, I hope I haven't thrown too much at you there, Axel. No, that's that's fully correct. Um, the alchemists continue where the Gnostic left out, so right. you can see the continuation of the work, and you can, can also see the distinction. Um, the alchemists has a, have a strong em- emphasis on, ma- on matter um, that might not always um, be compatible with the emphasis on spirituality that the Gnostic had. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's fully correct. Um, there's, they seem to, I think the way uh, Gnosticism is described is the first self-conscious kind of religion, and that's why it leads into psychology so well, because it's there's there is a, a kind of struggle with this inner world and not just reveal dogma. Yeah, very well said indeed. And I would certainly agree on all of this. And uh, I know, obviously, Jung had a more positive view of the universe, although I think uh, after his near-death experience, he did say, this world sucks, basically, because he literally left his body and went somewhere else. (laughs) He he really made contact with the higher worlds. But other than that, I mean, Jung was... uh, he appreciated the Nazis, but he didn't have this sort of we we are in a prison planet, uh, except after his near death experience. And uh, mm. so it's uh, interesting. But of course, Jung changed throughout time. Like all of us, we have different experiences. We discover parts of ourselves. Uh, sometimes we hide things. I think when Jung was uh, older, he sort of started just letting whatever he felt come out because he had nothing to lose. Like, talking about dark archetypes and the devil and all this other stuff. So uh, many ways to get through Jung. And uh, do you want to talk more about the basics of analytical psychology? Yeah, that, that would be great. I just would like to add one thing to the Red Book. Sure. Um, this is for the listener. Like, don't read it too early and don't read it too late. The way I, I like to approach this as someone who's fairly intuitive is I wait kind of for the book to call me. 
especially if it's something quite important. So if you read it too early, you'll just bounce off uh, whatever is inside it. And if you read it too late, you're really going to struggle by reading some of the other stuff. There's, there's a key, I would say, in the, the red book that's not found anywhere else. And uh, for the black books, uh, that might be a question that some people have, do not read the black books before you've read the red book, because the black books is the same experience as the red book, but without any commentary. So you, you'll just be completely lost. There's some additional material, but I would really reserve the black book at the end, um, or unless you feel called by the book. Don't, don't, just don't buy it because it's a nice set. Uh, please, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, let's let's talk. So now that we have the red book, I, I myself felt compelled to engage into a sustained therapeutic effort. Um, this is why my my visual guide has such a big part of it dedicated to therapy. The first thing that everybody needs to have is a kind of solid journaling practice. If you don't have that, um, you, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to uh, struggle, or you, you need a therapy therapists because if you start talking with people it's, it's too much to handle so a good journaling practice or anything similar is fundamental before you start doing something else i would say but but, but journaling you're talking not just dream journaling but just daily no, no. journaling yeah daily journaling like today i feel really bad and blah 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 and blah 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 and blah 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 the, and the person at starbucks pissed me off and da, 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 and what was me <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. You know, this is the kind of stuff we need to work through. Uh, it's not glamorous by any means, but it's, <laughs> it's needed. Yeah. So uh, my, my special, speciality, let's say it is dream analysis. So we can spend some, some time on this. It will help. Uh, if, I think it will help people to understand some concepts like the shadow. Um, yeah. So I, I thought how I would approach dream analysis. So there's this article, there's a template in my website. If you want to know how to do it, that's read it. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm going to try something a bit different on this conversation, which is to go through a few dreams and try to explain them um, to see how it goes. Yeah, definitely. And where so, is the template exactly in your website so people know? Oh, it's uh, dreamsanctuary.net slash template. Uh, Got it. You heard it here. Well, I'll have links to his website as always, audience, but uh, keep that in mind if you want to take that route when you go visit his uh, his uh, his website. So well, we're going to talk about uh, archetype, but as they appear in dream, and we'll focus on the shadow. So it's really hard to explain archetypes. So I thought I would give a dream that explains the difference. Um, so this is what the dreamer writes. A figure came to visit me. He appeared at unexpected moments as if he were trying to scare me. First, he jumped into my vision as a grotesque Japanese man with long black hair. I was in doubt if I saw him as a man, then he turned before me into a woman. Then appeared more grotesque Japanese figures of different sizes and sexes, but only for an instant. He even became a frog and a Mexican who had a long black oriental style mustache. This is not really an interesting dream to analyze, but you can see that this shadow thing is changing images. So when I talk about the shadow or the archetype, I'm not talking about the images, though the images is important. I'm talking about what's behind it. For me, it's kind of like a flavor. 
and this is what provides the dynamism to the to the shadow. This is why it's so difficult to explain archetype because it's not the image, it's what's behind the image. And hopefully people can feel that when they see a figure, it's like, oh, this feels this feels like something. And Jung used the word shadow, and so that's what it is. So I would say this is the best way to approach archetype. It's it's not the image but it's the dynamism between the image and it's not material, it's psychic. Let's define psychic at what is not material because what else is psychic? And it's unconscious in the way it's not, it's not from the ego. So it's not conscious, it's unconscious. And it seems that everybody has a shadow. So it belongs to the collective unconscious. It belongs to something that's specific to humans or maybe shared by the human species. That's what the, um, the shadow is. It's this primordial, psychic, non-material structure that does not belong to consciousness, that provides dynamism to dreams and is somewhat shared by the human species. It's, uh, this is how I understand it. And it's really, really hard to get that point across. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I figure it out, but it's always that question, what are archetypes really? And it's, it's a difficult question. Yeah, I would say so too. Uh, and uh, how you talk about symbols. Uh, so these symbols are something, uh, something that really helped me out is uh, I, of course, being in the esoterica, I was like, well, I want to understand what this symbol and I have books and I'll figure the symbol out immediately. And that will uh, bring insights into my life, even in the future. But I think when Jung said you're actually supposed to uh, experience the symbols more than decipher them that made a difference to me what do you think axel yeah that's a that's a key statement um that you made i don't approach symbols from the standpoint of the intellect i i feel into them what does it mean to be in presence of them let's say you know there's a there's a big snake well is the snake something that makes me afraid or does it looks kind of friendly so this feeling that you have with the symbol should be more important than the intellectual understanding. The intellectual understanding is really important kind of as a background strategy, but it should not be the thing you start with. So yeah, you have to feel into the symbol. Don't lose the emotional connection to the dream. If you do that, you, you're going to um, either have some kind of uh, confirmation bias, or you're going to explain the dream in, in, in the way it's not meant to be explained. No, that makes sense. But I think at the same time, our uh, cultural, the cultural infusion into our ego probably makes a difference. Like I, uh, I had a dream about a snake. And of course, to me, already snakes are because of Gnosticism are positive creatures. But then my wife being Catholic, immediately her ego is against snakes. So that, that has some weight and value. Right. So um, usually a symbol from the unconscious has a positive side and a negative side. And uh -huh. it's the dreamer we, which will reveal if it's more uh, on the positive side or the negative side. And then there's the dream itself, which might say, well, there's actually a very dangerous character here, but he's not dangerous in the dream. What dreams shows is as important as what dreams do not show. So you could have an absolute monster in front of you, but he kind of like waves at you. And so he's not, he's not a monster, he's, he, he ha, he's perceived as a monster. So that's, that's why um, dream analysis is, is difficult, because 
you have to feel into the relationship between you and the symbol, and then you have to provide your own context. And if all fails, well, then you have to go to the archetypal con content. Um, this is where um, Dream Dictionary might be helpful. I, I don't use them. Um, but sometimes I do like a search uh, on on the collected work and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's used. That's useful. So uh, it's, it's hard to have a, a good source for, um, there's no good dictionary of dream symbols. I would say. No, I, I have tried them. Uh, and what are the, the techniques, the mechanics that you suggest? I mean, uh, you talk about uh, what do you do? You wake up in the morning and you immediately write your dreams or what's your process of being able to recall dreams and interpret them better and better? Yeah, so let's say someone has, okay, I'm interested in uh, getting my dreams. So first, um, have a nice pen and have a nice journal. Put them next to your bed and put this intention that when you wake up, you write anything that that comes to mind that was a dream, anything. Usually that opens the channel for the unconscious to start to communicate. Now what people will struggle with is the dreams are going to be weird. They're not going to be understandable. They're not, they might be very dark. Um, they might be, you know, if you're too young, if you have a bit of a weak ego, I started this work at 23, 25. So, you know, young people might struggle with that. So you write things down and uh, then I would suggest going to my, my template and you would follow the steps. Uh, let's take a, a, a dream about the shadow and uh, sure. that, that will give an example. This is a woman's dream. I was in my friend's apartment with my husband. She and her partner wanted my husband to mediate between them and the entity that was living among them. After questions are asked, we end up near a closed door of an unknown, an unknown room. I open the door. The, ro the room is dark, except for a figure sitting on a chair. It has an eerie, cold presence. It is facing the wall at an angle. Its head is, its head is animal. Its body is human. It turns to face us and very quickly gets up and rushes out, bowling over my friends. In my mind, I'm, I am angry that it does this, and I'm just as quick to chase it. I want to shout out it. Come back here, bastard. But when I try to say the words, they are barely a whisper. My mind and voice aren't, uni aren't unified. It feels as though I'm anxious to chase, but righteous in anger. So again, this is a shadow figure. Um, it's, it has this cold, eerie presence. And it's interesting because it has the head of an animal and the body of your human. In dreams, usually uh, animals are linked to instincts. So we know this is this has to do with kind of a maybe a body body thing. Now that we have the dream, we have to link it with the context of this woman. So this woman had a very long and difficult uh, labor and birth, and uh, she received pictures of the of the birth, and I I suppose this is what we got out by discussing. Uh, she probably thought she got closure by looking at this picture and say, oh, this is how it looked and so on and so forth. Um, but in the unconscious, something started to started to appear, which is actually, no, you did not get closure by looking at those pictures. There's a part of you that looks like an animal and a human that is um, that has been 
you know, has been hurt. This is how I read the dream. That that figure is dangerous because it's been hurt. It's and this is why it flees. There's an opposition between our ego who thinks everything went well and the shadow who actually got damaged by this long and very arduous labor. And so, um, and we saw in the dream that her reaction to shout at it and try to fight it is muted. So the, the unconscious tells us, no, no, you don't, you don't have the right to insult that, that figure. You might be angry at it, but you don't have the right to attack yourself like that. So that would be an example of dream interpretation. There's the dream, there's the figures in it, there's the dynamism, and there's the personal context. And then with a, some kind of back and forth, we establish that, yes, this is what happened. She watched pictures of a, of a birth, thought she got closure. The unconscious give a, a reaction as a compensation, brings to consciousness what happens from its standpoint. And so the unconscious tells us, no, no, you don't get it. There's a hurt figure somewhere because this uh, childbirth was such a difficult um, period for you. So that would be an example of uh, the shadow for a woman. We are near the end of the interview, a great interview and a very useful interview. I hope for those who are seeking, uh, well, uh, more uh, wholeness in this shift in the shifting era as we get into the age of Aquarius. And for the audience, one more time, if you want to check out Axel's uh, website, it is dreamsanctuary.net. And there is the mind map and the templates for dreams and a lot of very good resources and articles on all things Jung and beyond. And uh, But first, before I, we say uh, goodbye to uh, Axel in this dream world here at the Virtual Alexandria, Vance, thanks for keeping us company. Ah, you're welcome. It was a great experience to uh, immerse ourselves in uh, Jung, which we love to do from time to time. And I learned a lot. So thank you, Axel. Thank you, Vance. And thank you, Miguel. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I've just started this website and uh, I, I find... I find that the fact that you contacted me is, uh, is very, um, it's, it's, yeah, I appreciate the, the, the risk that you, you took um, in trying to bring someone who's new uh, into the scene. It's, it's oh, no, weird. no, no risk. I looked at your website and that was easy. It was an easy decision and Vance agreed. So it's, uh, we, we love what you're doing. It will help a lot of people. And I hope you, uh, yeah, continue innovating and uh, good luck with all your projects. And uh, thanks for your time and coming on AM Byte, Axel. Thanks. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our dreamy interview with Axel. It only gets better. In our second part, Axel will discuss whether dreams can be prophetic and divination in general, and what reoccurring dreams might mean. He'll share on synchronicities and why they're actually scary. Then Axel will provide his insights on Jung's answer to Job, as well as why we are at the end of an era and why the age of Aquarius is so damn painful, and much more. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full dream therapy. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. 
You won't find this Gnostic and Hermetic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where many past guests hang out there and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Finding Hermes is live and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a whole lot of stimulating conversation and a Q&A. I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, vowel magic, sex magic, entheogens, astral ascents, mystical Eucharist, and much more. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the Virtual Alexandria. Lastly, I am now on Odyssey and Rockfin, moving away from larger digital domains and going to places that don't censor and offer crypto, or more like do offer crypto. Check me out there. And check your inner world, because that's where we find the means to defeat the banality of evil and do so many wonders. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. <laughs>